I've got to get used to that ending and probably get a bit more rock and roll in there. And um, those of you who don't know me, my name's Adrian. I'll be kind of taking this next bit of the kind of more afternoon together. Uh, in it, we started last week this new series we've entitled Building Culture. And week in, week out, we're going to have different individuals that are part of Oasis uh, sharing something about who they are, what they do, and how they seek to reveal Jesus. And that's not so that we just kind of sit there and think, oh, that's interesting, but rather that we get to know kind of what Oasis is made up of and get encouraged by the different ways, different ones of us are revealing Jesus in the unique settings God's placed us. Uh, in terms of this kind of title building culture, if you're around last week, and I don't want to rehash everything I said last week, but I just want to kind of start from the point uh, we left off last week, which is that if you like that word culture, how we're defining it is like standing on the shoulders of a guy called Andy Crouch, who wrote a book called uh, Making Culture, uh, which I was hoping to give away today, as I promised last week, but then found out as I logged on that it's actually not in print at the moment. Um, they've run out of books. And so therefore, I've got two books on order that I've been promised will be here within the next couple of weeks so then I will give them away as I promised they would because if we ever recommend a book we always say if it's good enough to recommend it's good enough to give away so they will be given away I am not a liar I will do it so there's that but one of the things Andy Crouch says is in terms of defining culture he says it's what we make of the world that's how he defines culture he says it's what we make of the world both in what we do but also the motivation behind what we do and what we're saying is actually we want to be those who are clear on what we're making of the world, both in what we do and also what we're motivated behind what we do, as we realise that for us as a community, as a church, that actually ultimately we were gathered and centred around God, who is Father, Son and Spirit. And we've done that out of response to his calling to us, revealed through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And as a result of that, it's then caused us to say, actually, we want to be those that are then defined by God. And want to then use who God is to define everything we're about. And so, in essence, kind of when we talk about building culture, it isn't that we're then kind of plucking some things out of the air saying, that sounds quite good, but rather looking at who God is and how he wants to define us. And what we said last week, and already we've got the image of the bus and someone behind me has already said, oh yeah, we're back on the bus, is that what we've said through this series is we want to imagine that Oasis Church is a bus. And in it, there's a culture we're therefore building on a bus. And if you're around last week, I looked at the whole fact that when you get on a bus, there can be a culture immediately on there. If you get on a West Midlands travel bus on a weekday morning, there's a culture which is basically do not look at anyone else in the eye, read the metro, read your book, or put your headphones on. But if you get on a bus which is all going to the a same destination, maybe a holiday or an experience, the culture is a bit different. There's a bit of a buzz. There's a want to connect with others who are following and going to the same destiny. And what we looked at last week is this recognition that the bus that we're on is one where we find that we've got a seat on the bus because of Jesus' invitation through his life, death, and resurrection. But as a result, it promises a shared destiny. A shared destiny that we looked at last week. And I, pro I encourage you, if you weren't around last week, please do go online, www.theoasischurch.com, uh, and listen to the talk because it will do you good. And in it, we looked at this amazing destiny we have where we get to be with the one who is the source and center of the culture we get to build, who is God. And what it looks like when he gets to define the whole of this planet and universe as it's going to be filled with who he is, full of his love, his beauty, his creativity, his justice, his mercy, etc., etc., etc. And so in that, what we've said, therefore, that on the bus we're in, the culture is set by the destiny we're going to. And that destiny then we draw on and allow it to affect how we are together. 
but we've got to picture it like a bus because it's also not that we stay on the bus, but rather it's an understanding that at different points we get off at different stops in the unique places that we've been placed by God in the home situations we're in, the, the kind of work situations, education structures, recovery patterns that we're in. And we get off in those places, not with kind of a once-out, man, I can't wait to get back on the bus, but rather of an understanding that we get to take the culture that we know on the bus into the unique environments that we're in and get to help shape them with the same culture. So that when we get back on the bus, we're able to celebrate the sense of, oh yeah, this is what we're about. And so we've said that over the coming kind of weeks, I'm looking then at what does this culture look like? We've looked last week at the destiny we've got, of how that impacts us. I've looked at the source and the center of all of God. And today I want to pick up on kind of the first attribution of this kind of culture, the first attribute of the culture, and that's love. It's already come through through our worship, um, but it's something that I want us to look at because we're going to discover that actually everything else that we get to build is founded on this unique part of the culture we build, of love. And in it, you can see it throughout the whole history of Christendom, throughout the whole of the world. And so if you've ever read a book by Rodney Stark, which is called The Rise of Christianity, it's a relatively slow read. Uh, It's not one of those ones that you pick up and steam through. Uh, It's very tiny font and quite hard going at different places, but it does you good in which it's a, a historian, historian even, not a historian, a historian, looking at what is it that caused Christianity to go from this kind of weird Middle Eastern cult that proclaimed that they'd seen Jesus die and then rise again and then leave the planet and go from this small bunch of people in a certain region to spread within a few centuries throughout the known world, causing people to be deeply impacted by it. And so Rodney Stark, when he wrote this book, did it with a perspective of saying, well, what is going on here? He wasn't a believer. He just wanted to ask the question, what caused this difference? And in it, he comes to some different conclusions. And one of the conclusions he comes to is that it was the way in which they lived their lives. And so he looked at some of the unique things that were going on in the first three centuries uh, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and said that actually... The first 300 years, there were some key events going on. One was the kind of spectrum of the Roman Empire and how it was kind of infiltrating the known world. But also there was these key moments where actually tragedy struck. And as a result, those who followed Jesus had opportunities to shine. And one of the tragedies he talks about is within the third century, where there was a huge plague that swept the Roman Greek Empire. And and in it, it kind of wiped out loads of people. Uh, and coupled with that, there are also moments not only of this great plague hitting people, but also uh, earthquakes. And so people were just completely unsettled. Not every household was impacted. And then he comes across these accounts of how believers responded amongst that situation and then makes some conclusions. And this is one of the accounts. And he writes about an individual who's one of the church leaders of that time who'd write seasonal letters to all the other believers. And this is a historical letter uh, that this guy Stark found and kind of uses it as evidence. And he says this, At the height of the second great epidemic, around 260, in the Easter letter already quoted above, Dionysius wrote a lengthy tribute to heroic nursing efforts of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring for others. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. 
Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting the pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons and laymen winning high recommendation so that death is in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. And Stark goes on to say that actually, when you look at this, it then is not a surprise that those who've been nursed back to health through the love of believers being willing to care for them and lay down their own lives often for them it's not surprising that those who've been cared for then sought to say, what on earth motivated these individuals to respond like this? And then finds that actually numbers of them then came to say, well, we want to know this God that motivated them in this way. And in such caused the kind of spread of Christianity, he would say, through practical acts of love. And then it is therefore, I think we need to live with this conclusion of saying, like Stark, within the culture we're in, Probably one of the most profound ways we can cause people to see and taste how good God is, is within the lives that we live, revealing love. See, we're in a culture where actually there's a lot that's spoken of in terms of the individual and what I want and I need. We're living in a culture at the moment post an election in June which has caused there to come to the surface great kind of divides within us as a nation that in a moment where within just a proportion of votes, suddenly we say we're going to exit Europe, what it did is suddenly came to the surface, this sense of, well, there's a difference, there's a breaking of who we are between old and young, between those who have been born here and those who've come here. So much so that I was talking to a friend of mine who works at one of the universities uh, in the city that has a number of students who come and study from Eastern Europe who'd just been around for a couple of years, and they went out the Friday night after the Brexit vote and went to a pub within Birmingham where they'd go to very frequently. And on that night, they were just chatting over a table. And someone who they've seen many times before just came over to the table and said, didn't you get the message? It's time for you to go home. And this, this kind of couple of students just left, just thinking, what, what's going on here? See, suddenly we're in a point where this culture, which talks so much of kind of tolerance, Actually, in moments like this, it kind of escalates, and what comes to the surface is this deep-helded want of understanding there is divides. And it's into that sort of unique setting that we get to shine out and say, actually, what we get to build is from a place of culture that is love, and a love that actually transcends any divides and is able to be revealed to everyone and anyone. And it's therefore that, that that I want us to get hold of. You see, you only have to look at the kind of New Testament and see how Jesus kind of called us to live. And we find that Jesus continuously said, actually, there's to be this marker of who we are as a bunch of people, as followers of him. And that's to be love. And so you find it in respect to him talking about being a distinctive. So in John 13, 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's, that's a massive statement, a distinctive of saying, actually, how people are going to get to see who God is, is how you and I interact and love one another. And suddenly you think, man, that's quite daunting. 
Like, did I even talk to anyone when I arrived today? Let alone reveal anything else of love. And this is a distinctive of, of how we're called to be by Jesus. It then kind of ramps up as it's not only a distinctive, it's also a command I want to give you. So in Matthew 22, verse 37 and 38, Jesus says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is my first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That Jesus gives this command and says, right, if you're going to follow me, then how you're to live is with the whole of yourself, your mind, your soul, your heart, the very, very core of who you are, is to be centered wholly on who God is. Loving him with your whole self. And also, you're to love people like that as well. And you're to love your neighbour. In other words, anyone you find next to you, you're to love regardless. There's this command that says, well, you're to live with this distinctive of love. You're to live with this command to love God and to love everyone. Now, some of you are new around. You might realise how easily we found it to say how we distinguish who we are as a church. We say, well, what we're about is loving God, loving people. It was no original thought. It was from Jesus. And we said, well, that sounds pretty good. Let's do that then. But in it, it's not only the command there. Is he, Jesus kind of adds an added challenge to it. He says, right, you've got this command to love God, to love people. But it isn't just the people you like. He then says in Luke 6.27, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Good, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. Suddenly it's like the bar keeps going up and up. So it's this, right, you're going to be distinctive. You're going to understand. You're going to reveal who God is by how you love. You're to love holy God and also people. And also you're to love everyone, even the people who are kind of frankly just against you, who are your enemies, who are out to harm you, out to do you no good. You're to love those as well. And we can hear this in the, oh, yeah, 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 we love people, we love God, or we even love people who don't like us. But that's a high, high bar. And that can suddenly feel like a weight. I think, wow, this, this is a pressure. We've gone from, oh, yeah, let's love, that sounds kind of a nice thing, let's put it on T-shirts, love God, love people, that's kind of cool. People will like that, won't they? They'll think, oh, you're the kind of nice people. You're about love. And you think, but this is a love with pretty bad or pretty big implications. A love that involves the whole of us, a love that means we love everyone regardless of how they treat us. And therefore it starts to become a pressure and potentially a bit of a duty. We think, oh yeah, it's on the t-shirt, it's in there, I better do it. I better love people today. If you were around a couple of months ago, you'll realise that much of how my working out how I need to love others is work through the anvil of my marriage. And so Lucy, my wife, and I uh, talked about the reality of what it is to be married and to reveal kind of how we're trying to keep God at the center of our marriage as we looked at marriage through our series in Ephesians. And one of the things Lucy talked about was exposed in a right way, I think it's really good to do it, some of kind of the ways I fall short. And one of the things that she talked about is how I announce or pronounce the making of the sandwiches and pack lunches of every morning. And so those of you around that point, you know that was quite a big point. I know many people came up to me afterwards and said, do you know what? I do that as well. I think it's good, Adrian, you do it, that you announce that you've made the sandwiches. That wasn't the point. The point was, I'm not going to announce about making the sandwiches because what it does is it reveals something of what's going on in my heart. See, I'm not a morning person. 
I don't like the mornings. I have to drink a lot of caffeine to like the mornings. And so in that moment, what I'm trying to do is love my family by making pat lunches. But at the point at which I announce, behold, the pack lunches are made, what I've done is I've revealed everything that's going on in my heart. Rather than just the pack lunches being made, I want to draw to, the, draw to everyone's attention that I've made them. Because that's the kind of guy I am. How amazing am I that at half past six in the morning, I've made the sandwiches. And what it does is suddenly it reveals to the rest of my family this isn't a moment of love. This is actually a moment of duty. A moment of me saying, task done. Come bring your thanks. <laughs> and this isn't what Jesus wants to live with. He doesn't want us to live thinking, all right, there's these high calls in terms of how we're to love. But it's out of this sense of duty. Rather, what I believe we need to get hold of is actually we love not out of duty, but rather out again of our destiny. I think that's something that Paul got hold of. In many of his writings, you see that everything he sees is motivated out of this deep understanding of what it means to be loved by God and the destiny we have of being loved by God. We've already heard of it at the beginning of this, this, this session of just saying, actually, John, in all of his writings, was one who just was overwhelmed by the fact that God loved him. So much so that he only ever addressed himself through his letter, John, or through his gospel account of John, as the one that Jesus loved. So was it to mark his life. He said, oh yeah, I'm the one Jesus loved. There's something we need to get hold of in terms of our destiny and love that the writers of the New Testament got hold of that actually transforms then how we live out of love. And to do that, I just want to briefly look then at one of the most magnificent poems that you can find in Scripture that's written to a bunch of believers in an area called Corinth that Paul writes to them to just reveal something of the magnitude of what love is all about and how it's to define us and how then we can cultivate this love in order that we reach the high calling of what Jesus calls us to be as followers of him. And how I want to do that is I want to read out 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to examine it a bit more detail. I'm going to read it out through a different translation of the Bible. It won't look like yours. Uh, this is one that I only recently got told about, which is kind of a kind of amplified translation. In other words, it's not a word-for-word -word translation. Rather, it's kind of a way of paraphrasing in language we understand what was being conveyed in the original Greek. And it's put together by poets, storytellers, artists, and theologians. And therefore, in terms of when you're looking at a poem, these guys get it, and they kind of try and express it. So I thought it'd be great to look at it. It's a translation called The Voice. Uh, and so we're going to read it through there, and then I'm going to jump back into the NIV, which is a bit of a more literal translation. So it says this is what Paul's conveying. What if I speak in the most eloquent languages of people, or in the exotic languages of the heavenly messages, but I live without love? Well then, anything I say is like the clanging of brass or a crashing cymbal. What if I have the gift of prophecy and I'm blessed with knowledge and insight to all the mysteries? Or what if my faith is strong enough to scoop up a mountain from its bedrock, yet I live without love? If so, I'm nothing. I could give all that I have to feed the poor. I could surrender my body to be burned as a martyr. But if I do not live in love, I gain nothing by my selfless acts. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love isn't envious, doesn't boast, brag, or strut about. There's no arrogance in love. It's never rude, crude, or indecent. 
It's not self-absorbed. Love isn't easily upset. Love doesn't tally wrongs or celebrate injustice, but truth. Yes, truth is love's delight. Love puts up with anything and everything that comes along. It trusts, hopes, and endures no matter what. Love will never become obsolete. Now, as for the prophetic gifts, they will not last. Unknown languages will become silent, and the gifts of knowledge will no longer be needed. When I was a child, I spoke, thought, and reasoned in childlike ways, as we all do. But when I became a man, I left my childish ways behind. For now, we can only see a dim and blurry picture of things, as when we stare into polished metal. I realise that everything I know is only part of the big picture. But one day, when Jesus arrives, we will see clearly, face to face. In that day, I will fully know, just as I have been wholly known by God. But now faith, hope, and love remain. These three virtues must characterize our lives. The greatest of these is love. N.T. Wright, uh, in his book, Surprised by Hope, commenting on this chapter, says this. The point of 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is not our duty, it is our destiny. It is the language Jesus spoke, and we are called to speak it so that we can converse with him. It is the food they eat in God's new world, and we must acquire the taste for it here and now. It is the music God has written for all his creatures to sing, and we are called to learn it and to practice it now, so as to be ready when the conductor bring down, brings down his baton. It is the resurrection life and the resurrected Jesus calls us to begin living it with him and for him right now. I have this concern as followers of Jesus, that sometimes we think love is one of those things, oh yeah, I get that, and move on, rather than getting hold of what N.T. Wright is saying here, is that love is this consistency and this consistent message that keeps coming out, that is actually part of the new world when God gets it as it's meant to be. And it's that that we get to nourish ourselves on. It's that that we then get enveloped by. And therefore, this life is now one where we get to taste and continuously see more of what is to come, of this amazing sense of God's love for us. And if we're going back to this passage in terms of 1 Corinthians 13, that Paul wants us to understand that love is our destiny. And so verses 8 to 13, Paul writes this, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When as a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. But now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Even as I am fully known, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now you can see that, and it gets tagged on the end. And it can feel like, right, we've got this amazing statement of what love is. And then at the end, this kind of weird moment where Paul kind of seems to talk about childhood, looking in mirrors, things that will be, things that won't be. But it's all about the same message of what love is. And what Paul's trying to get hold of here is that actually our destiny is one that is characterized by love. And when he starts off here that love never fails, that word fails actually could be more accurately translated as ends. And he wants us to get to understand that actually love will never end. 
And in it, in understanding that love will never end, he then says, actually, I want to paint these two illustrations. Two illustrations allow us to understand that actually what's never going to end has more to be discovered. And he says, well, it's like in this life, it's like our childhood. In childhood, you know some things, but when you become an adult, you have a greater understanding. He said, in respect to love, there's something that we know now, but actually there's something that's greater to be known that is to come. He then says, it's like a polished metal that's like a mirror. So something that's not quite like the mirrors we have in this day and age, but one that would have been in the Corinth day and age of a polished bit of metal that would have been distorted. And when you look in it, you see the surroundings, but it's kind of dim, what you can see. You can make out, but you can't quite see in reality. Paul again saying, well, this is about love. That actually what we know and experience of love now is nothing when it's compared to the clarity of which we will see and understand love in a reality that's going to come about when God has everything as it's meant to be. Paul then drives it home even further and says, actually, we need to understand the reality of love being our destiny when compared to other things that seem amazing in this life of faith and hope. He says, the reality is this, that actually faith and hope will one day, though they're good now, come into non-existence. Because actually, when you finally see God and can see God as we see one another, why do you need faith anymore? You don't need faith to believe God's there because you can see him. So it won't be there. When finally the planet is renewed as to how it's meant to be, filled with the wonder of who God is, you don't need hope to believe that one day it's all going to be renewed because it already is. So hope will be gone. He says, oh, but there's one thing that will remain, and that's love. This love that's been there before the creation of everything, this love that was about a God whose community of Father, Son, and Spirit, who's always loved one another, who then out of love created. And even though it got broke, still didn't give up on it and said, no, no, we're going to renew everything through our love in order that one day everything would be caught up eternally in our love. And Paul says, that's our destiny. Our destiny is one that is defined by love. A love that we get to taste now, but actually is one that is yet to be, that will just outweigh anything we know now. But it is a love that is to define us. So much so that you find in verses 1 to 3, Paul says, actually, whatever you do now, if it's not characterized by love, will become meaningless. It'll become like a noise. It'll become like nothing. It'll become like a 42-year-old guy strutting around at 6.30 in the morning with the sandwiches held above his head saying, look, I have made the pack lunch. It becomes just like a noise, like a clashing symbol. See, a clashing symbol, when you hear it the first time, it gets your attention. When it's all you hear, it becomes very annoying and you try to avoid it. And Paul says that's what it's like. We can do the most amazing things, and yet if it's not motivated, coming out of love, actually you'll become worthless, nothing, a noise. Therefore, we need to ensure that we cultivate love. We cultivate love in who we are. And Paul kind of says, well, how we cultivate it, four to seven, is we get to understand that this love that we're talking about is of substance. See, when we talk about love, it can feel a little bit out there and think, oh, yeah, let's all love each other. And you have great artists at the moment who suddenly put on social media an old song when they're in a different band, and it's called Where Is The Love? And we all think, oh yeah, where is the love? Oh, like that, yeah, I'm into the love. But no one really knows what we're talking about. 
Where is the love? I don't know, because I don't know what really we're talking about when we mean love. And yet here Paul kind of makes it concrete and says, when I talk love, I mean something of substance. So he goes and he paints this vivid picture of this love. He says, love is patient, kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul says there's love that we're called to reveal, to be defined by, to cultivate, has substance. Now in that, can still feel, well, what does that look like? Well, for me, how it helps me to discover what the picture is that Paul's painting in respect to the love we get to cultivate is I get to, I look at this list and I think, okay, what is, what's the opposite? And then Paul always kind of does a question. He always says, this is what it is, this is what it isn't. And so what I do is I look at the isers of love and the isn'ts of love and say, well, what's the opposite then to that? So what we find there is he says, love is patient, therefore it's not impatient, impatient even. Love is, it shows self-restraint. I haven't got an opposite there. Love is kind, not hurtful. Love is truthful, not deceitful. Love, it protects, not exposes. Is trusting, not cynical. Hopes, not despairs. Perseveres, doesn't quit. Keeps no record of wrongs. Doesn't hold on and remind. Then he says, love isn't envious, but celebrates in other success. It isn't boastful and proud, but it's humble. It isn't rude, Rather, it's polite. And that one is one of the easiest ones to do. I find literally the fact that I just go around and smile at people seems to transform environments. It's as simple as that. I smile, then people tell me about their life. It's nuts. How bad and broken is our world at the moment that literally a smile opens people's lives up? Anyway, carry on. Love is not self-seeking, but unselfish. It's not easily angered. It doesn't delight in evil, but enjoys what is good. You see, the thing is, this looks amazing. We could take a print of that list and say, all right, let's give ourselves then to this. We've got this destiny of love. Yeah, we're going to know love. And therefore, we get to reveal this love. We're going to love like this. And we're not going to do that. We're going to do this, rather. But again, if we're not careful, it then becomes this sense of, oh, it's down to me. I've got to live out this duty. You see, the, the reality is to cultivate love like this. We cultivate it from our experience. Our experience of the fact that we've known love. The reason that we get to center our life on Jesus' life, death and resurrection is because we've understood that God loves us. And that kind of proclamation throughout all time of his love was of the giving of his son. I used to read this book when my kids were little and it was called Guess How Much I Love You. It wasn't to kind of question them, to be kind of wobbled, thinking, does that actually love us? It wasn't either to figure out which one I love the most. It was just genuine story that's talking about, guess how much I love you. And it's this amazing story about two rabbits, a baby rabbit and a big rabbit. And the baby rabbit comes up to the big rabbit and says, I love you. And the other big rabbit says, well, I love you more. So one of them says, well, I love you to the end of the garden. And he says, well, I love you to the end of the lane. And he says, I love you to the end of the world, where I love you around the world, then it's, I love you up to the moon, I love you to the moon and back. And then it says, the big rabbit says, well, I love you this much. And the little rabbit, you see it kind of trying to push his arms out, and it can't reach. And suddenly he realizes in that moment that he'll never be able to reach as far as the big rabbit loves the little rabbit. 
And I used to say, oh, unfortunately, my kids are too big now. When they're little, they couldn't do it. I'd go, I love you this much. And they'd reach out, and their hands would kind of get to here. I'd go, you can't reach it. <laughs> exactly. I win. No, that was the whole not point. <laughs> and in the same way, God looks at us and looks at the cross and says, I love you this much. And the reality is we will never, ever fathom the depths of that love. But we're called to explore it and live in the good of it. In order that we'd understand that we are more loved than we could dare to believe. See, all that Paul paints as a picture of what love is, is actually a reality of who God is as love. See, that word love is a word in the Greek which was agape, which is basically a word that wasn't in commonplace until believers got hold of it. And they needed to find a word that expressed something unique about how God loves. And they found this word, agape, and they realized that that's the word they were going to own and define what it meant. And that word came to mean that it was a love that was revealed by the Father through the Son of unconditional sacrifice. So that anyone getting hold of it would say, agape, oh, this is different. This isn't just like love. See, so often that word agape gets talked about at weddings. And so you hear someone talk 1 Corinthians 13, very popular wedding passage. And we think, oh, yeah, it's limited to that. Oh, yeah, agape, the marriage word. No, no, it's nothing to do with that. It's actually about God. It's the God word. It's the God word of love that every single one of us gets to live in and enjoy. In order that everything that is spoken of, of how we're to reveal love, is actually what we're first called to come and experience of love through the Father. In order that we understand that the God of love is the one who is never irritated, but is always patient with us. It's one who's never seeking to expose our vulnerabilities, but rather seeking to protect us. Who's never quits on us, but rather perseveres. Who never holds on... Uh, to anything we do, but rather forgives us. Is never cynical, but rather continues to trust in us. Is never hurtful, but always kind. Is never causing us to despair, but rather always giving us hope. And it's that that we get to plumb into and experience. Why? Because God, who is Father, Son, is Spirit. And the Spirit is longing to come and both reveal in our understanding, but also in our experience and comes and dwells within us in order that we'd understand that we're loved in this way, in order that we can live in day in, day out, tasting more of the fullness of the love that we will one day see. The question is, are we? Are we living daily being nourished by how God loves us? Because once we start to live from that place, we suddenly realize that we don't need to live looking for love. I don't need to live looking to think, is, is that person loving me? Because I realize I'm more loved than I could dare to believe by God. Therefore, rather than looking to be loved, I let, get to look to show love. And ultimately, how we then get to cultivate love, how we get to show love, is to love as we've been loved. Therefore, we get to cultivate by dying. See, what was... What spoke to Rodney Stark in that Rise of Christianity book was the fact that people would love others, strangers, in such a degree it would cause them to lay their lives down. Literally. And for Rodney Stark, that was to push him onto a quest of starting from a point, an academic point of view of saying, why did Christianity rise? To a point of conclusion of him realizing that actually maybe this Jesus is real. And maybe this Jesus would transform my life 
in order that he then would say, now Jesus is the centre of my life. The same thing meant to be true for us, that just like those early believers, it caused the love they understood then caused them to lay down their lives. So for, so for us, that the love that we've understood then causes us to lay down our lives in the loving of others. And I'd say it's through three different ways, through the dying to our rights, the dying to our experiences, and the dying to our needs. So if we go back in terms of the dying to our rights, it means that we are dying to my right to be irritated in order to be patient. It means that I'm dying to my right to expose someone else's vulnerability in order to protect them. It means I'm dying to my right to quit and give up and say, that's it, I'm gone, in order to persevere. It means that I die to my right to hold on in order to forgive. See, so often we can think that the dying is that grandiose moment of saying, oh yeah, do you know that person? They laid down their life. For most of us, we won't ever have to lay down our literal life, but we're called to die like this. And in a culture where everything is actually about the preservation of my own rights, actually the call to lay down all of my rights out of the love they've had is an immense challenge and can only come about as we realize the love that we've known that allows us then to die to the rights. We don't stop there, it's then a die to my experiences. A dying to my experiences would cause me to be cynical in order to trust. Those moments of thinking, yeah, but if you really knew, Adrian, what happened in my life, you'd know why I don't really believe what people say. I've heard what you've said before. I've heard people say, oh yeah, we're here to build something, but the reality is it never quite is that. It means like to push forward, we have to die to our experiences to say, no, we're going to keep trusting. Die to our experiences which cause me to be hurtful in order to be kind. And I don't deny that sometimes we get hurt by things. Some of us have had significant things happen to us which cause us to live wounded. But in that it isn't that we then go on to wound. It's rather that we go on to say to God, would you come and would you make me whole in this place? In order that in the comfort I know I can offer comfort. It's dying, dying to my experiences which caused me to despair in order to have hope. But it's not only the dying to my experiences, it's also my dying to my need. My dying to my need for recognition in order that I would not boast or be self-seeking. See, why we all laugh at my sandwiches is ultimately we all know we do it. We all know we have those moments where actually what we're looking for is someone to come alongside and say, you're great, you are. When we've got this father who is all loving, who's continuously standing there saying, you're great, you are. Why do you keep looking to everyone else to say it? And so we have to get back and say, are we really those who are living in how our father sees us, how Jesus, the, our brother, loves us, in order that we wouldn't be those who are looking for recognition? We're dying to our need for a reputation in order that we would not be deceitful but truthful. And dying to my need to compare that causes me to be jealous in order to celebrate in other success. See, when we come to building culture, it's very, very nitty-gritty about how we live our lives from a basis of what we've known. So building with love means that, firstly, for some of us, it's an invitation to know this love. And maybe it's the exploration of understanding more of how we are loved. For many of us, we know that we know we're loved. And therefore, I'd say I'll leave us with a couple of questions. So if we go to the last slide, it's this. It's this first one is, what is it you need to do to understand 
But what do you need to do to live more in the fact you are loved? And the second question is, what do you need to do to die to, what do you need to die to in order to build love? It's those two questions I just want to leave us with. What do you need to do to live more in the fact you're loved? And what is the one thing you need to die to at the moment to reveal more of love? I'm going to pray, then we're done. Jesus, I thank you so much for being with us today. And I just ask, would you take the frailty of all I've spoken, the frailty of who we are, in order to reveal the wonder of who you are? And I pray, God, would we be able to live more and more in the knowledge of how we're loved, in order that we would love? ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen.